Good morning. Good morning. If you need a Bible, raise your hand. You need to have a Bible in your hand. Um, we believe the Bible is the center of everything we need or is necessary to know from God. Um, just as he told me already, I'm the youth pastor here. My name is John. I primarily teach on Wednesdays. We have middle school at 5.30, and then we have high school at 7.15. And uh, each week we have teaching. We have our own worship band. Um, throughout the year we have different trips and uh, missions trips we go on with the kids. It is an awesome group. Um, whenever things are busy and pastors are busy, they have to bring in their third string preacher, which is me. So bear with me, and hopefully God speaks louder than me. Um, but before we start, let's pray. Father, just thank you for this time together. More of you, less of us. More of you, less of us. And that's our prayer, Father, that you would teach us what it means to examine our own hearts, our desires, our motivations, that you would align them to you and not of ourselves, that we would be the vehicle for the gospel to go forth. And Father, we just pray as we study your word, that you would not return void, that you would just challenge us, and we give this time to you. Amen. Um, I was telling kids last week um, what would happen in the Old Testament if you're a shepherd, and you have your flock, and you have a sheep that likes to wander, likes to wander away from the flock, and if you're not with the flock and a shepherd, you are in danger. And so a shepherd wants to teach the sheep how to stay close to him, and what they would do as a shepherd is they would literally break a lamb's leg. It sounds harsh, but it's for their good. It's painful in the moment. And so the, the rationale is, like, you would break its leg, so it couldn't wander anymore, and the shepherd would literally have to carry that sheep and keep them with them the whole time. And as that leg mends and heals, the sheep now learns, like, through habit of always being with the shepherd. And so it would cease to wander into danger, but stay close to the shepherd. And so Jesus used that as an example of like what he does for us. Sometimes he wounds us and hurts us not because he wants to hurt you, is vindictive, but because it is his discipline to help you grow and mature, to stay close to your God, your Savior. And so this morning, I'm going to break your legs. I'm going to break your legs, and then Jesus in the gospel is going to slowly mend you. Um, when we teach middle school, it's, it's toned down, it's a little more simplified, but high school, like, I purposely teach like I'm teaching to adults because I don't want them to have a shallow, lukewarm faith. I want a robust, deep, rooted understanding of what the gospel truly is, and we don't anything that is not of Jesus. And that is what we have to do. But in order to get to a robust, deep, solid understanding the gospel and what it means to live worthy of the gospel, you have to be more disciplined in examining your heart and always, always realizing at any moment your sin can take over, that you are prone to wander as sheep. So like I said, I'm going to break your legs. Um, and uh, it's going to be, just buckle up, just buckle up, let's do this. Um, in today's culture, people have their own views, opinions about what Christianity is and what it is not. Much of it which is not true and much of it which is as well true, but some of it which is earned and some that is not. And so there is a group called Barna. You guys ever heard about Barna Group? 
Barnum Group wrote a book uh, years ago, uh, I think it was in college, called Unchristian. And Barnum Group is, their specialty is doing surveys of across America. I think they fo- primarily focus on America. And they do different surveys about what is the spiritual state of America. Is America primarily Christian or is it not anymore? Is it more pluralistic? Um, how many people who graduate college still go to church and what does it mean for them to go to church? And, and so they did a study uh, recently that I read that is they call fleshing out Christ-likeness. And what they did is they had a test of 20 questions. And they gave it to people who claim to be Christians. And Christians in the broad sense, you can have very narrow, like true biblical sense of Christianity, but some people say they're, they're Christian, but they're not. But their survey was anyone who professes, like, yes, I'm a Christian, and I believe in the Bible kind of stuff. And so they had, had it broken up in 10 statements and 10 statements that were mixed together. And so the survey was this. How many people who say they are Christians actually follow and exemplify the actions and the attitudes of Jesus? And how many Christians exemplify Pharisees and self-righteousness? And so I'm going to give you a few of the statements, both which are the attitudes of Jesus and Pharisaical and self-righteousness. So if you look at the survey, you see this. Uh, and you would rate uh, on a scale of four points how much you agree with these statements in the survey. So people will see these statements like this. I listen to others to learn their story before I tell them about my faith. In recent years, I have influenced multiple people to consider to follow Jesus. I regularly choose to have meals with people with very different faiths or morals. I try to discover the needs of non-Christians rather than waiting for them to come to me. I'm personally spending time with non-believers to help them follow Jesus. I believe God is for everyone. I see God working in people's lives even when they are not following him. It's more important to help people know God, to know God is for them, than to make sure they know they are sinners. I feel compassion for people who are not following God and doing immoral things. Now on the other side, the self-righteous statements that you could rate whether you agree with or disagree is this. I tell others... The most important thing in my life is following God's rules. I don't talk about my sins or struggles or difficulties because that's between me and God. I try to avoid spending time with people who are openly gay or lesbian. I like to point out those who do not have right theology or doctrine. I prefer to serve people who attend my church rather than those outside the church. I find it hard to be friends with people who seem to constantly do the wrong things. It's not my responsibility to help people who won't help themselves. I feel grateful to be a Christian and when I see other people's failures and flaws. And the list goes on. And so you would see this, these statements be mixed in and you rate how much you agree with them. And this is what their findings were. They found out 51% of those who took the survey and said they were Christians, 51% leaned more on the pharisaical self-righteous side than on the Jesus side. Isn't that staggering? It's pretty interesting. Like, their surveys are good, too. Like, they're, they're well-known and accredited. It says 51% people who say they follow Jesus don't actually live like Jesus. Don't actually live like Christians. And Christian means to be a mini-Christ, a mini-Jesus, if you will. And so when it looks like this, it's amazing to think about the one thing we are supposed to do well, be like Jesus. We don't. And so that has created this whole stigma against Christians that are, we are only about ourselves. We're only about 
the rules and make sure people look like us and live like us and think like us. We're known for what we're against and what we're not for. And we're known as being harsh, judgmental, bigoted. And the list goes on and on. And many of that is because we ourselves as a church have given that to ourselves. Because we have failed to understand what the gospel actually is. And what does it mean for Jesus to actually control, to master your, not just your mind, but your heart. And so what I want to do is talk about the difference between Christianity and religion. Christianity and religion. And some of you are like, wait a minute, I thought Christianity was a religion. Yes and no. <laughs> Actually, Timothy Keller has this beautiful quote. It says this about Jesus. Jesus is the most anti-religious person who founded a religion. <laughs> And he goes on to say, religion is using God to gain power through your own performance. Jesus is the most anti-religious person who founded a religion. If you don't believe me, if you would, open your Bibles, because we want to read from the Bible. Matthew 23. Matthew 23, if you could. If you don't believe this about Jesus, you're going to find out how serious he is about judging religious people and those within, you could say, Judaism in the Bible. Matthew chapter 23. Uh, when I teach throughout the year, we mix up our teaching with the kids. We do, um, sometimes we'll do book by book, chapter by chapter, verse by verse. Learning wisdom means stay within your passage and study that. And then we also do topical uh, subjects. Where we'll choose something like that's pertinent to the kids. And topical preaching is when you take what is the whole of Scripture say about a particular topic. And so I'm not going to just stay in Matthew 23. I'll, I'll be bouncing around and saying other passages, but this will kind of set the tone of how Jesus deals with religious people. Verse 1, Then Jesus said to the crowd and his disciples, The scribes and the Pharisees sit on Moses' seat. So do and observe whatever they tell you, but not the works they do. For they preach, but do not practice. They tie up heavy burdens, hard to bear, and lay them on people's shoulders. But they themselves are not willing to move a finger. They do all their deeds to be seen by others, for they make their phylacteries broad and their fringes long, and they love the place of honor at feasts and the best seats in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplaces and being called rabbi by others. You are not to be called rabbi, for you have one teacher, and you are all brothers." Skip down to verse 13. Here it comes. But woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. For you shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces, for you are neither enter yourselves nor allow those who would enter to go in. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. For you travel across sea and land to make a single proselyte. But when he becomes a proselyte, you make it twice as much a child of hell as yourselves. Woe to you, jumping down 23. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice, mercy, faithfulness. These ought to have been done without neglecting others. You blind guides, straying out of a gnat and swallowing a camel. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and the plate, and the outside also will be clean. 
Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are all like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanliness. So you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Wow. Do you guys feel warm and fuzzy inside? Oh, Jesus, man, you're like a teddy bear. It's not so warm and fuzzy. But if you look at who Jesus is talking to and outwardly, like, rebuking them, these are the religious elite. The Pharisees were a Jewish sect of, like, you were all about following the law and being the example of what it means to live righteously. Jesus is going to town. He is going ravenously after, tearing them apart, And so it's interesting, like, even the men who were, like, the top of the top, the best of the best, religiously, Jesus just tears them apart and says, woe to you, woe to you, woe to you, hypocrites, hypocrites. Do you realize what you are doing? And he goes after him. And so in this time, I'm going to give you three things, a contrast between what does it mean to be religious and what does it mean to be a genuine Christian who follows and knows Jesus. And so as I go through that, I want you, examine your heart. Is there some religiosity, if that's even a word, somehow remaining in your heart that you are not truly understanding the full extent of the gospel? Because if you follow and know the full extent of the gospel, there is no room to be religious. There is no room to be prideful or boastful. But here's the thing. All of us are guilty. You're all guilty of one time or another not showing the grace, the kindness and mercy that people deserve, that God calls you to do. And so when I say, please examine your hearts, you will all be guilty at some time or another. And I want you to be honest with yourself and say, how much are you truly living worthy of the gospel of following Jesus? So let's do this. Number one, religious people, they are concerned with the external. Religious people are concerned with the external. They're not authentic people. They're not about showing their flaws or their failures or their difficulties in marriage or work, work, or, or anxiety, things that you wear or, or worry about or fear. They're all about the external, looking beautiful, looking like you have things together. You're right. You're wise. You're like you've got the most generous heart and care for people. When you come to church, you dress up super nice, although you guys look very beautiful this morning. Some people, can, you can easily use your external and what you look like to hide the ugliness that could be inside you. And here's the scary thing. You could have all the external, external works of following Jesus, but at the same time be just as lost as if you never said you followed Jesus. Isn't that scary? It's scary because you could do everything. You could, you could ha- have a Bible study. You could be serving every week. You could be the religious one who is always serving and volunteering and taking care of widows and orphans, but at the same time, you could be just as, be, be just as disconnected from Jesus as anyone else. And so in Roman times, in Greek times, especially uh, when Matthew was writing, Greek and Roman culture had multiple gods. And so what you would do is, 
you would want to make sure the gods were not angry with you. You would actually appease the gods. And so being religious in that day is like you would make sure you want to sacrifice or like give your alms or everything to any god that you want to bless you. And you had gods for everything. So if you want to have a child and you want to make sure that child grows healthy and stuff, you would have a god of fertility and you would sacrifice and do this to make sure the god of fertility is happy with you and, and will give you children. If you have a crop or something and you want to have good crops and a, a large harvest, you have gods for like harvest and you got sacrifice to them. And so in Rome, you have something called the Pantheon. The Pantheon is a place of worship for all gods. And the idea is that you can manipulate and control the gods to give you the blessings and what they want. Where in the Bible and Scripture, like, man, you cannot master, you cannot control God, just the opposite. And so Matthew 23, 27 says, to the, Matthew 23, 27 says this, Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites! You're like whitewashed tombs, which look beautiful on the outside, but the inside are full of dead bones and everything unclean. I used to have something called a camelback. You guys know what camelbacks are? Yeah. So a camelback is like a water bottle that you can wear as a backpack. It has like a bladder that you can fill up and normally has like a hose that comes down you can use. So I had one that... The hose had like an insulator on it. And so whenever I would use it and I was done, I would actually wash out the bladder and like clean it out because like stuff can get gross when it's wet. And then you refill and use it. But I never cleaned the hose, partially because I didn't think of it. I was in college, whatever, you know, just use it till it dies. Um, and secondly, like I never really saw it because I had this sleeve on it. One day I happened to pull back the sleeve and to my, you could say, disgust and horror, I realized the entire tube was full of black mold. And I was like, how long has that been there? <laughs> like, I've been sucking water through mold. <laughs> like, no wonder I'm sick all the time missing work. But in that moment, like, it looked like to me, it had a sleeve on it. It looked like it was clean, it was great, it was refreshing, but I was poisoning myself all the time. And the same thing, this is what Jesus is trying to get at, says, some of you look beautiful. You guys got it all together, a beautiful smile. <laughs> you look attractive, and people want to be like you, but says in the inside, you're like dead bones. On the inside, you're hurting. On the inside, you're ugly. You're full of anger. You're full of bitterness, malice, rage, anger. Jesus is like, listen, it's not just the outside. It's the inside, too. And so if you are religious, the reason why you obey these laws is out of compulsion and not love. If you're religious, you do it because for, it kind of creates two things. The first thing is this. You obey and do things for, for God because of out of fear. Out of fear, if I don't do it, God's going to get me. If I don't do it, maybe I'll lose my salvation. Maybe God won't want anything to do with me. And I have this conversation quite a bit with kids, especially kids who are very mind, like have a mind that, man, I always got to be doing the right thing, kind of like type A, have things together. And if they have any failures, like, man, God doesn't love me. Like, man, that's not true. 
There's nothing you can do to separate yourself from the love of God. It was never about you in the first place. And you have to claim the grace that you never deserve in the first place. And so even though, yes, you have failed now, it doesn't change your standing with God. But if you are religious, you're always living in fear. Is God going to get me? You're always living in fear. Am I going to go to hell? Or what's going to be taken away from me? Very much the prosperity gospel. you right. If you do these things, you will have massive blessings. Look at my car, look at my house, look what I have and health and all that stuff. That is no different than the Greek gods and you're going to Pantheon trying to manipulate and control God and get what you want. Not for God, but for what God has to offer you. Which is very much how we preach the gospel, right? Hey, believe in Jesus. Here's the gospel. Get saved. Get to heaven. Get justified. Get adopted. And you miss the hub, the core of the gospel. The good news of the gospel is this. You get Jesus. You get a relationship with God. He comes into you and sets you free. He cleans you up. And so when you get Jesus, then you get justified. Then you get saved. Then you get adopted. Then you get redeemed. All this language that he uses. But the hub is you get Jesus who does that. The good news isn't that you get saved. That's probably 2% of the gospel. But here, or here's the second thing. It's either fear or pride. Pride. If you do things well, you start feeling superior. Feel like you're better than everyone else. I know the standards, and I have attained them, and you have not. Let me tell you a thing or two about why you're wrong, and here's what you need to do. There's no compassion. There's no grace. Pride. So you have the religious side, external manipulation of God. It's all about what people see and not what's actually inside. Christianity is this. God is concerned with the heart. God is concerned with the heart. First Samuel 16 says this, For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance. But the Lord looks at the heart. And you see this because if you ever read the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus goes right to the heart for everything. So what he does is he takes the Old Testament and the Ten Commandments. And the Pharisees and the religious leaders, here's, if you're religious, this is what you like. Give me a list of what to do. Just tell me what I have to do and I'll be good. That way I can have a checklist. Yes, boom, 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 boom. I did everything I expected. I'm good. Don't worry about my heart. Externally, I did what I was supposed to do. And so Jesus knows this of these Pharisees, and what he does is, in the Sermon on the Mount, he takes each of those commandments and just rips them apart. He actually goes deeper. says, some of you have heard, you Pharisees, do not commit adultery, but I tell you, if you look at a woman of lust, you have committed adultery. He's saying, listen, you don't even have to sleep with someone. You've already committed that sin in your heart. I don't care if you did it externally or not. He goes right to the heart of human beings. You are just as guilty as a person who externally slept with that person. And he talks about if you hated your brother. Actually, he goes in the Old Testament. You've heard, do not murder. But he says, if you hate your brother, you've what? You committed murder. You are all murderers. And he goes through systematically, says, listen, 
God doesn't just care about your actions, your sacrifices. He cares about what is actually in your heart, what drives you, what controls you. And many of you have, you believe your actions show what your heart is, but the inside is like your whitewashed tomb. The inside is dead and decay. But if you truly love God, you will obey not out of compulsion or control or fear or to gain pride, but out of love. Love is the catalyst, is the thing that drives you, is recognizing who God is and what he has done for you and his great love for you, and his love stirs you to love. And so if you truly love God, then you will seek not to be so concerned about the external, while that's important, but also you start with the internal. And then from your heart should flow actions of love and kindness. Some of you are really good about hiding it. You can fake it. You're muscling through to be the most kind, generous, patient person, but at some point you're going to slip up. At some point, for those of you who are married, you are not perfect. Hate to break your bubble. Because when you're dating and you're about to get engaged, you're like, he's perfect. There's nothing wrong. We've never hard, had an argument. It's happening. It's going to come one day. Just wait for it. But the idea is everyone is in need of examining their whole hearts. And we have to rely on the love of God and not ourselves, if you are going to have any change, God has to do it for you. You have to submit to God to change your heart. And in order for you to do and follow the law properly with not just your mind or your actions, but your whole being, who you are, you have to submit and allow God to control your will, your desires, and your heart. So, religious people, concern the external, but if you actually follow Jesus, it's all about the heart as well. Number two, religious people love to alienate and detract. Religious people love to alienate and detract people. If you are religious, you like to stay away from people who are different from you. You like to stay away from people who don't have the same morals. You like to stay away from people who don't have the same political views. And not only that, but you stick together with those who are just like you. The ones you're most comfortable with the ones who are easy, the ones who agree everything that you have and you surround yourself with yourself. And actually, this is a problem in Jewish history. So when Jesus is attacking these guys in Matthew 23, and he says, woe to you all these times, the reason why these scribes get everything so wrong, these Pharisees got everything so wrong, is to believe back when God had a promise of the Messiah and the kingdom and salvation one day, the Jews thought it was for us. They didn't realize the entire time the mystery of the gospel that Romans talks about is that not just the Jews get in the promises of God, but the Gentiles. And so the Jews were harvesting all of these blessings and promises is for us. We are God's people. We are the chosen. Not realizing they were supposed to be the vehicle that would carry the gospel and the promises and the hope to all of us, to the entire world. Got a good example for you. I'm taking this from one of my students who actually had an opportunity to teach from the kids, Dr. Seuss. How many of you guys have read the book on snitches? So if you haven't read it, let me bring you up to speed. 
So Dr. Seuss wrote this thing about sneetches, and in this story, sneetches are like these creatures, and they have these bellies. And there's two types of sneetches. There are sneetches that have stars on their bellies, a single big star. And the second type is sneetches without stars, nothing. And so you learn that the sneetches with stars on their bellies feel completely superior and better because sneetches with are better than sneetches without. And so these sneetches who have stars on their bellies, they have these parties and beach parties, and, and the sneetches who don't have stars are like, hey, can we come too? No, because you haven't got no star on your belly, because we all know sneetches with stars are way better. And so as the story goes, this, this guy, I think, is, I think is a chappy, chappy who fixes up all or something, comes in town. So he sees this predicament, and he goes to these chappies without stars, says, listen, I can help you. I got this machine. But if you go through this machine, what it will do is it will put a star on your stomach just like all the other sneetches, and then they'll accept you and love you. And so all these sneetches are like, okay. And so they pay this guy money, you walk to the machine, and they all get stars on. So they walk up to the sneetches, who've always had stars, like, look, now we can come to your party. And they're like, uh, no, you can't. We're still, we had them the whole time. We're better than you. And so... The chappy sees this, and he, what he does, he makes another machine, and he comes to these ones who always had stars, says, listen, what's in now is not stars. What's in now is no stars. So he takes the sneetches who always has stars, says, I'll remove them for a fee, and he removes them. And so now the sneetches without stars are now the popular ones. And so the sneetches who got stars on, well, we want to be like them. And eventually... They go back and forth, back and forth, and they get mixed up of taking stars off and on. Which one's more popular? Which one's like the elite group? And eventually they get so mixed up. In the end, the story goes like this. In the end, no one knew who was who. They realize that all sneetches are the same. They're all equal. And when Jesus is teaching against the religiosity of these people, he says, listen, you are no different than someone else, you scribes and Pharisees. To your Bible, you are no different from those outside these doors. You are just in need of saving as anyone else. Just in need of a God to rescue you from yourself. To remove not just your sin, but the sinner itself. He had to crucify your sin on that cross. Luke 18, 9-12. And he also told the parable to some people who trusted in themselves, that they were righteous and viewed others with contempt. How do we as your Bible church, how do we who claim to follow Jesus, how do we view and interact and treat those who are not Christians or are just different from you or don't have the same views from you? Is it with love, compassion, care, kindness, understanding that you are just as worthy of the gospel as I am? You are just as beautiful and lovely as I am. There's nothing that makes me more lovely, more acceptable to God than you or me. So God has come to rescue you. John 3, 16, who? The world. His heart is to save all mankind says he does not desire for any man to pass away, but for all men to come to him. 
But here's Christianity. So you have religious people alienate and detract and stay away from those who are less than them or broken or dirty or criminals. You don't associate with those people. But Jesus says, this is who you associate with. In Christianity, you are attractive and attracted to people. You are attractive and attracted to people. A good example of this is Mother Teresa. If you've ever studied something about Mother Teresa, she knew this to the core that to follow Jesus means you have to associate with the poorest of the poor, is what they said. The most broken, the most damaged, the most hurting. She associated with those who had no fame, had no power, had no money, had no influence. She went after those, and she was known to minister to those who had HIV, to those who had leprosy, to those who were dying, those who really had no hope but were terminal. She was a woman that purposely knew to follow Jesus means you associate purposely with those people. Mark 2.17 says this, And as he reclined at the table in his house, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. For there were many who followed him, and the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with Sinners and tax collectors said to the disciples, Why does Jesus eat? Why is he eating with these tax collectors and sinners? And when Jesus heard it, he said to him, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but the sinners. If there is anything in you that I think you are righteous, you are more deserving, you are more lovely to God, and your salvation has to do some, even as the most minute thing to who you are and what you've done, Jesus can't save you. He can't save you because you will not recognize your desperate need for Jesus to heal you. As it says, I have not come for the righteous, but unrighteous. If you do not see that you are unrighteous, I can't help you. You must be humbled and realize you are in desperate need. And you have a cancer called sin. And when that cancer comes full term, it leads to death and separation from God. Matthew eleven nineteen. I love this verse. The Son of Man came eating and drinking, and they said, Look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet wisdom is justified by your deeds. It's interesting how Jesus, who never committed sin, was called a glutton and a drunkard. But his name, his notoriety was a friend of sinners. He would be, if in modern-day America, he would be at the bars. He would be on the streets. He would be meeting with prostitutes. He would be meeting with criminals. He would be going to prisons. He would go to the most unlovable, most unbeautiful or non-beautiful people you can ever meet. He went after those people. And so I want to ask you, do you have that reputation? Can we as Seer Bible Church say, we at Seer Bible Church are a friend of sinners? And when sinners walk through these doors or engage with you through the town or next to your next door to you, do they have that opinion of you? You are a friend of all people. And you do your best to be at peace with all people. 
Because that is exactly who Jesus is. He's a friend of sinners. And if you follow Jesus and you're a Christian and you're supposed to be like Jesus, you will be a friend of sinners. You will be friends with those who are rough, difficult to love. Number three, difference between religious people and Christianity. Religious people believe you are saved by works. You are saved by what you do. And you are not safe from this as well as Christians. You can, yes, be generally saved by Jesus, but still have a works mentality that somehow seeps into your pores and it remains there even when Jesus is part of your life. And so the idea is like religious people saved by works, you obey God's law to get value. You follow Jesus and you do things because you want his gifts, like I said before. Here's an example for you. When I was in grade school, teachers always had the most unique ways of getting you to obey. They had incentives, <laughs> bribes, you could say. Um, and I'm sure some of you have experienced this too. In some classrooms, teachers would be like, hey, I have a currency. And when you have enough of these bills, these fake bills, you can get into the prize box. And so when I was in grade school, I remember, like, teachers have, like, these fake, like, dollar bills. And if you're good or you did a service or you did something right, they'll give you, a, like, a dollar, whatever it was. And I would save mine up because when you go to, like, the prize box, you had different tiers. You had, like, tiny little things, and then you had, like, huge toys. So, like, man, I'm just going to suffer through for a few months, not get anything. I'm going to spend all my money because that works in life and get the best thing I could. But I also have one teacher that... When I was fourth grade, I still remember this, and it was like traumatizing because there was a bulletin board that had a tree, and each student had a bird, and it had your name on it. And so you always, when you came to the classroom, your bird would be at the top of the tree. I would call it the tree of grace. <laughs> You're in good standing. You are doing all right. You just arrived. But if you made mistakes, and you did things wrong, and you pushed girls to the ground, you would get consequences <laughs> You, one time I punched a girl named April in the face. I don't know why. <laughs> I think I remember she, she was using my favorite toy. I'm like, I wanted to use that. I'm going to get you away from it by hurting you. Um, and the teacher's like, now you're in trouble. So what they would do is they take your bird and they move it down the tree. And as your bird got lower and lower, you would fall from grace. And the consequences got severe. The first one is always a warning. You move your bird, don't do it again, don't do anything wrong. <gasps> okay, I'm still good, like, we're all right. But if you move down, you would start losing some privileges. Uh, the worst one in my mind was, like, you lose recess time. You had to stay in and clean the room. Like, oh, my goodness, this is ridiculous. This is child abuse. This isn't right. <laughs> but if you went as far as you could, you would take a trip to the principal's office. And no one wants to go there. <laughs> and so I remember my friend Dave who I grew up with, he came out here with me one year. Uh, his bird went all the way to the, the very bottom. He fell from grace. And man, he was petrified to see the principal. But if you have a works mentality, you will deal with your relationship with God in the same way. I don't want to feel the consequences. I don't want to feel bad about myself. I want to be in good standing with God. And so we almost live in our lives as just a fear of what God is going to do to us. And so we want to earn the prizes. We want to earn, like, his favor. And we want to do all these things to get God. And we want God to be happy, like, and, like, joyful with us. And, like, 
And so we try to do the best we can with our works so we get the best of God and stay away from the consequences. While consequences are good, and sometimes consequences keep us away from doing sin, it should not be the primary motivation to do good works. Here's a scary thing. Matthew 7, 21 through 23. Matthew 7. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of the Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, do we not prophesy your name and cast out demons in your name and go do mighty works in your name? And Jesus says this, and I will declare to you, I never knew you. Depart from me. Your works are of lawlessness. That should scare you. These are the people. Look at them. They said they cast out demons. They prophesied. They did all these mighty works, it says in his name. And God's like, I never knew you. You thought your works would get you into the kingdom? There's only one way in the kingdom. That's through Jesus. And this is like one thing that's so sad about our culture, especially American culture, this idea of like heaven and hell. And if you are good enough and your good works outweigh the bad, then you get to go to heaven. But if your bad works and your deeds outweigh your good ones, then you go where? To hell. And becomes like this idea that religion and Christianity is all about good works. You got to be good because you don't want to go there. You want to go here. You want the prizes. You don't want like the punishment of staying in Parisis. And God's like, it's always been about Jesus. So religious people say you're saved by works, but if you're a Christian, you are saved not by works, but by grace. And it's always been by grace. And I think what happens in many of our lives is we understand that you are saved by grace, but we don't realize that we continually live by grace. Yes, I am saved, and I know I'm saved in God's family, but now i got to do the work. Now I have to be good. Now I have to work hard. And you try to muscle, muscle your good deeds. Try the best you can. And you, like, you work it out. I'm like, I just got to be patient. Just got to be hard and be patient. But if you realize in anyone's lives, you cannot muscle hard enough and do it perfectly. You have to allow God to change your heart, as we talked about. Romans 3, 23 through 24. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. How many people have sinned and fall short? All people and all are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that comes by Jesus Christ. Ephesians 2, 8 through 9, For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not from yourselves. It is a gift from God. Not by works, so that no one can boast. See, if you really understand how undeserving you are, if you really see the gravity of your sin, you realize there is nothing in you that could ever deserve God's love. There is nothing inside you, nothing you could do to gain God's favor. He has to freely give it to you. And that's the history of Israel. Why is Israel God's chosen people? Because he loves them. He says, not because you guys were the great nation and you're full of many numbers stuff, but I love what Jesse said. He quoted someone said, because you're the bottom of the barrel. We're all the bottom of the barrel. And yet God reaches deep enough all the way to the bottom to lift you out. 
He doesn't go for the righteous ones. He doesn't go for the ones who think they have it all together. He doesn't go for the pride, the ones who are prideful. He goes for those who know. With the story of the tax collector and the Pharisee, he goes for the one beating his chest. I'm unworthy. I'm unworthy. If you understand how unworthy you are, then the gospel of God's grace will be so beautiful. It will not be enrapturing. It will not be beautiful. It will not be the greatest story ever told because you are holding on to some semblance of good in you. But if you actually understand that, knowing you did nothing to earn your salvation, it will inevitably lead you to a great humility, a great humility between you and God and horizontally with each other. It will lead you to the great humility. Matthew 7. This is a verse that is typically misused all the time. It says, Judge not that you not be judged, for with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use it, it will be measured to you. Why do you seek the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log in yours? Or how can one say to your brother, let me take a speck out of your eye when there's a log in your own? You hypocrite. First, take the log out of your own eye, and then you'll see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. One reason why this is so misused, especially like by you see people outside of Christianity, is to be like, hey, don't judge. There you go. Don't, you can't tell me what to do, what to believe, what's right or wrong. Your Bible says don't judge. But it's not talking about all judgment because judgment that is dealing with discernment is a good thing. But it's talking about a specific type of judgment is a self-righteous judgment Jesus is talking about. Some of you are engaging with people and like you're judging because you feel like you're superior, you are better than them, you earn God's love, there's something more lovely about you. And Jesus is like, no, it's not true. And he uses the example of the speck in the eye and says, you have a log in yours. And if you follow Jesus, you must always see the log that is in your eye. Many of us are so concerned about what everyone else is doing, what they're believing, and like what they are doing in their relationships. And so we are so like blinded by like policing everyone's else actions and make sure they're in line with the law, we forget that we ourselves are trespassers. In doing so, we have made ourselves guilty. And so if you follow Jesus, you must always, always see the log that is in your eye before you are rightly able to judge others. And even when you do, you must do it with great humility. In fact, I think when our evangelism is happening, it needs to be less of, see your sin, you need to repent. It needs to be more like a wooing, a drawing in, because that's what Jesus does for us. He says, come and see that God is good. Give up your sin. Don't you see the hurt, the suffering that you are holding on to? Release it. Come to Jesus. See, his way is the most beautiful, the most right, the most free. Don't you want that? Please, I am begging you, follow Jesus for your good. Come and taste and see that he's everything you ever wanted. If we had more of that type of evangelism, we would have less of a stigma about us that we're all about judgment and following the rules and standing in line and more about, man, don't you want to be in a relationship with God who loves you? A perfect relationship that he never fails? 
And here's a beautiful thing. In Christianity, Christianity is the only religion where God comes to be abused by the powerful. Philippians 2.8, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient, even to the point of death, even death on a cross. I think if you look at the Old Testament, in the time the church was growing, beginning, and Jesus has ascended and now the disciples are left to plant God's church, if you look at the day and age, Rome is in power and Christians are systematically being persecuted, partially because Nero is blaming Christians for burning Rome, but they are being hunted down, like killed, crucified, and like beaten and ostracized. And you see, that becomes the catalyst to spread the gospel everywhere. It is through suffering that the Bible and the gospel takes root in that soil. It does not take root as a church when we have power. It does not take root when we have control. It does not take root when we have government. And that is something the church has done. I'm going to get fired up a little bit. But the Catholic Church, that is where they went wrong. When they, Constantine became emperor and he made Christianity the main religion, now Christians who are persecuted and the gospel is going out because now they're loving their enemies under persecution, now they become a majority with power and they start doing injustice and actually start crucifying and torturing those who aren't Christians. We have lost our way as a church of realizing if America is changing and they're changing laws, who cares? Because that does not, America is not the future of the gospel. America is not the hope. The gospel and Jesus is the hope. And by being under persecution, we will now have a vehicle for the gospel to go forth. In the midst of your suffering, love your enemies. That is the midst of what Jesus does. His love is so deep and so radical, it goes to those who crucify them. When Jesus is on the cross and he's been nailed and pierced, what's he say? Father, forgive them. In the midst of being crucified, he forgives those who are literally nailing his hands to a cross. You know, the love of the world isn't really love. It's not love because the love of the world is you love those who are close to you. You love those who are easy. You take care of those who are your family. But Jesus' love says, listen, you go to those who are unloving. You go to those who are not beautiful. Those who are trodden and beaten down, the criminals. You go after those who are very, even your enemies. You serve. And Jesus, he shows that when he's with his disciples, the God who created the universe and created those very men takes the role of a servant and bows to his knee and washes their feet. And even think about who was one of his disciples, Judas. The entire time he was with all his disciples, he never treated Judas differently. He loved Judas. He cared for him. He taught him. He did not differentiate him from everyone else, even though Jesus knew, Judas, one day you're going to betray me. And so, are you willing to love the unlovable? Are you willing to love atheists? Any religion, gays and lesbians, everything in between that, are you willing to love criminals, people who lie, cheat, and steal from you? Those with polar opposite political views, your neighbor, anyone, are you willing to love even your enemies? If you're not willing to learn how to love these people, you cannot claim to be a follower of Jesus. If you love God, you will love people. And here's the kicker. If you don't love people, you do not love God. Your faith is a sham. You have deceived yourself. And some of you are like, well, I'm just not a people person. I just don't like people. It makes me feel anxious. And like, I don't want to. Like, who cares? 
if you follow Jesus, the extent that Jesus went to love you was torture. You can withstand an awkward conversation. <laughs> See, if you're a follower of Jesus, if you are a Christian, you are called to mimic, imitate, reflect, practice, embody the same love that Jesus has. You were undeserving. You were lost. You were condemned. You were hopeless. And yet Jesus chose to love you and pull you out. I want to end with a verse. Um, I think God's words are far more powerful than mine, so I want God's words to ring in your ears more than mine. And so what I'm going to do is I'm not going to end in prayer. I just stepped off the podium in the first service, and everyone's taken back. Like, is it done? What's going on? I'm going to read this verse, and I'm just going to step down, and then we're going to worship God. I'm not going to end in prayer. I'm not going to add anything to it. Allow God's words about who you were before Jesus and what he has done for you. And also, I want you to really pay attention what draws men to himself and salvation. This word kindness is going to come up. Kindness is a thing that will bring more people to Jesus. Not more, look what you're doing wrong. Not more, repent. Not more like, don't you see what you are doing is wrong? It's more of the kindness of God will draw people to him because that's what God does for you. Let's read this. Titus 3. This is beautiful. At one time, at one time, we too were foolish. At what time, one time, Sierra Bible Church was disobedient. At one time, Sierra Bible Church was deceived. At one time, Sierra Bible Church was enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures. We lived in malice and envy, being hated and hating one another. But when the kindness and love of God, our Savior, appeared, he saved us. Not because of the righteous things we have done, but because of his mercy. He saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us generously through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that, having been justified by his grace, we might become heirs having the hope of eternal life. This is a trustworthy saying. And I want you to stress these things so that those who have trusted in God may be careful to devote themselves to doing what is good. These things are excellent and profitable for everyone. Would you guys stand with us for this last song? Sing our Father, our Father everlasting, the all-creating one. 
Heavenly Father, God, we just thank you so much just that you don't make us earn our salvation, God, that it's a gift. It's a free gift of grace, undeserved and unwarranted, Father, but you give it anyway. And I just pray that as we celebrate this weekend, God, and we just give thanks for the the lives that have been given and the lives that are in service right now for our freedom, God, that we celebrate our freedom in you as well, Father, that you fight for us and you always fight on our side. We love you and we thank you. We praise you. In your name we pray. Amen. Have a good weekend, guys.